Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Today, I'm thrilled to be sharing with the community the conversation I had with Liz during our live stream podcast recording. You can check out part one via the link in the show notes below. Today, Liz opens up and takes us on her journey of breast cancer. As an ICU nurse, this isn't your typical journey. Working in the hospital, when she first felt a lump and her arm went numb, she thought, should she walk into the immediate care center? While most of us wait by the phone, waiting for it to ring and deliver test results, Liz was able to read her own charts. She brings humor and knowledge to the conversation today. As a wife and mother of two great boys, we talk about resources for speaking about cancer with your children. We talk about some of the concerns we have as younger women diagnosed with breast cancer. For example, the long-term implications of being on Lupron, hormonal therapies, starting menopause before 40, having a hysterectomy, and of course, the implications of osteoporosis. It's a content-filled episode, so let's dive right in. Welcome to the conversation. Without further ado, Liz, I am so honored to have you here on Breast Cancer Conversations tonight. I was joking earlier during the setup that I can't believe it's been over 12 weeks since we got to hang out, and the only way I get to catch up with you is to record a podcast. So I miss you, but I know you have been incredibly busy in the ICU, working crazy hours and saving lives, not just our lives, saving lives of like breast cancer, but also like lives of people who have been diagnosed with COVID. And so for that, I first and foremost want to say thank you to the work that you're doing on the front lines every single day. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be able to be on here and talk with you. Um, We've talked for so long about doing this, and we finally just said, we need to do it, pick a date. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I was diagnosed actually at 34 years old, um, about two years ago. Um, I actually felt the lump. Um, I always wore underwire bras and my bra was really annoying um, in one specific spot. And, you know, I just kept trying to readjust and whatnot. And then I felt the lump and, um, you know, your initial thought is like, oh shit, (laughs) like, what is that? And then it was part of me was like, okay, I don't even want to touch it again. I don't want to feel it because maybe it's not there if I don't touch it. Um, And ironically, I, you know, I also was having some arm pain, um, some weird feeling tingling in my arm. And uh, the nurse in me then is thinking, oh my God, I'm probably having an MI, I'm having a heart attack and, you know, I'm too young for this, but you know, what do I do? And so one of my really good friends is an emergency room nurse. And I said to her, I said, would you feel like, look at me crazy if I walked into urgent care and said, I have arm pain and I have a lump on my breast. She goes, the lump on your breast? Yes. The arm pain? No. I said, okay, well, I'll go get it checked out. So, you know, I dropped my boys off at school did my thing, went to urgent care, figured they would, you know, look at me and be like, you're fine. It's you're like a a nutcase. Um, And I really kind of like, that's my, my personality is kind of to joke about things and make light of them. Um, So when I walked in, I just was like, so I either have cancer or I'm having a heart attack. Not sure which, maybe both. And you're literally thinking these two things like, oh, yeah, 100%. And the medical assistant was like, oh, 
okay. <laughs> so the physician assistant walked in and she goes, so I hear you have cancer and you're having a heart attack. I was like, yep. <laughs> yep, I am. And no, she said it in a joking way. So, you know, to, to go along with how I was acting and, um, you know, they worked, they did labs, they did an EKG, nothing panned out. She really thought the, the arm pain was like a pinched nerve. And then she couldn't even feel the lump. And I was like, I swear it's there. I'm telling you it's there. I'm not making this up. Um, I, you know, then she left the room and I'm like feeling for trying to find it. And I found it and I would not take my finger off of it until she came back and felt it. And she's like, yep, it's there. You know, obviously you need a mammogram and an ultrasound. Those things typically aren't done like on an emergency basis. Um, she called upstairs and was like, got me in a couple hours later. And I was, you know, I was really thankful that, that she really advocated to get me in so quickly. Um, and I actually am really friendly with her now. Um, and I constantly am saying thank you for pushing for, you know, early, early scans and stuff. Um, and I didn't even leave the building. I had like three hours in between from me leaving urgent care to my mammogram and ultrasound. And I just sat there in the waiting room, like waiting, watching the TV, watching the people go in and out. And, um, finally they they took me back and they did the ultrasound first. Um, and it's just, you just know, like you have that feeling, you see their facial, their facial expressions and you just like your stomach drops and the radiologist came in and was like, yep. So no matter what it is, we're going to have to biopsy it. And no matter what it is, it will have to be removed. And he's like, so we'll, we'll schedule your biopsy. And I was like, nope there is no scheduling. I, we are doing this right now. And he's like, yeah, we don't typically do them in the same day. And I just was like, Oh no, no, no. I have watched biopsies. They're quick. You can do it. It's like, I, I'm, I have confidence you can do it now. And he's like, let me go talk to someone. And he left, came back and he goes, we'll fit you in. I was like, thank you very much. Yes, you will. I just was like, not taking no, I wanted this done. And I think he picked up on the fact that I was not leaving without a biopsy. Um, but also like my heart's racing, you're panicking, then you're being pulled in for a, a mammogram and you're just like back and forth between different rooms in the little waiting room. And um, there's other women there and I'm in tears. I'm on my phone texting a friend who works in oncology to, you know, the nurse navigators coming in and talking to me, asking what surgeon I want. It was like so much happened in like a 45 minute period that I went from just coming in for a mammogram and an ultrasound to now having a surgical appointment, getting a biopsy, calling out of work for the next day because I had lifting restrictions due to the biopsy for two days. And it was like such a whirlwind for just 45 minutes that felt like three hours. It was yeah. just crazy. I like, I look back and I was like, what the heck happened that day? <laughs> Completely. And, you know, I think on one end we're torn, right? It's like, do we want to know? Do we not want to know? We have a pit in the stomach that we know what the answer is. Um, and I'm always interested to hear why some people get an ultrasound first, some people get the mammogram first, et cetera. And so did you ever end up having the mammogram or was it just the ultrasound to biopsy? No. So I actually had both, but I will tell you, um, after my ultrasound, the, the tech had said, 
I don't know why they brought you back here first. Our protocol is mammogram first. And I, I, I was like, I don't know. I just went where I was told. So <laughs> right, um, things not to say to the patient. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm not sure why they brought me to you, but they did. Um, yeah. I think ultimately they had ordered both. And so I, I don't know why it matters the order of them. Um, but regardless, I had them both. And then I had the biopsy and they did another one after the mother mammogram after the biopsy. So yeah, I'm not really sure the order of them or why. Yeah. Yeah. And um, good for you for advocating and saying, I'm already here. We're already taking time off of work and there's no need to reschedule. Like if we think something needs biopsy, do it right now. I think we're always utilizing the term and I don't want to make it sound cliche to keep advocating for ourselves, but you really have to push and demand. And I think it's so easy just to assume, especially in a culture where we just assume whether it's like authority figure or doctor or they know best for us to really say, and I think as a female for our intuition to say, no, like you're doing this right now. And we talk a lot also about, um, you know, the various toxicities that are going through our systems, whether it's chemotherapy or radiation or anything that we're putting into our body. And one of the topics that came up not too long ago was the financial toxicity and the additional um, components of taking time off of work, trying to find childcare, the driving back and forth, paying for a parking, like all of this added expense that goes on with, sure, we want to schedule and let's book six weeks out. But what that actually does from the patient experience is it adds up and it's something I'm glad that we're talking about and so good for you. I I applaud that. So how was the, um, how soon after the biopsy did you find out your results? What was going through your head at the time? Um, so my biopsy was a Monday afternoon and I actually read my own results on a Wednesday afternoon. Wait, what? Um, I read my own results, uh, the perk and the downfall of working in healthcare and, um, working in the same system that I get my medical care is I have my electronic medical record, um, on my phone and I was a crazy person stocking my chart. And they had told me it would take 48 hours, potentially, you know, Wednesday late or Thursday morning, the results would, would pop up. But I was, I was crazy, you know, like every hour checking my chart, looking for the results. Um, And I was standing in the kitchen and with my husband, my husband was cooking and I read my results and I just said, I have cancer. And I then went into like, survival mode and um like okay what do I do like what's my next step what what does this mean you know I did what every nurse tells you not to do and I started googling um you know what some of the I mean I'm an ICU nurse I don't do diagnosing oncology and on all the specific tests and what they mean and so all like the little um, the her too and the fish and all that. And I was like, what does all of this mean? And I'm texting my friend who works in oncology and um, asking her what it all means and whatnot. And then actually about an hour later, um, the physician's assistant that I saw in urgent care called to, to ask how I was doing to, you know, after the biopsy. And then my PCP called um, to tell me my results, which I thought was interesting because I hadn't even communicated to her um, about what was going on at the time. Um, And um, I already had an appointment for Friday with a surgeon. Um, 
to kind of come up with a plan. Thursday morning, she actually called me to offer an earlier appointment, which um, was really nice, but it also helped kind of come up with a better plan um, in terms of let's get an MRI before we meet. So I have those results when we meet. Thank you for sharing like all of this. It's so hard to, I think, relive that experience. Um, I don't know if it ever becomes easier for us to pinpoint and remember that exact day where we find out we got diagnosed with cancer. Um, one question that I think comes up a lot is how do you tell your husband, how do you tell your your spouse, your loved ones? Um, you're a mother of two, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I have two boys. You, like what I, I understand like the survival mode. I think that's like instinct, right? You're like, okay, let's get into practicality mode. Like we have to make appointments. We have to get things set up. Um, can you share any tips or advice or what was how you navigated that piece? Yeah, for my husband, I mean, he was there and I just, it just came out and I, you know, I was reading my results. He also works in healthcare. So he, hmm. you know, understands the craziness of being able to read your own chart. Um, but I think I, I told two of my really close friends, um, first, um, pretty quickly. And I think the hardest call for me was actually calling my mom to tell her. Um, and that's really when I broke down. Mm. Um, and so I think she was the hardest phone call, um, in terms of telling my kids, um, they were little, um, uh, kindergarten and first grade at the time. So I wasn't really sure how to tell them. Um, and thankfully my oldest is pretty oblivious to the world. So he wasn't picking up on a lot of like me being upset at the time and whatnot. Um, so, and we have a really great group of close friends with, uh, you know, our, our kids all have really good friends and families. So they're pretty, um, busy with, with their friends, um, and kind of don't really care about mom and dad and they want to be independent and whatnot. But yeah, so they were kind of preoccupied, which was a blessing at the time. Um, and then I was talking at, you know, later on a week or so later, I was talking with a social worker that I work with and, um, she, and I was talking to her about like, how do I describe this to my kids? You know, how do I dummy this down to a level that's not scary, but is honest and, and, you know, so much is going to happen in the next month, couple months and change in the next couple of months. But how do I make this not scary, but honest for my oldest, it was describing cancer as Legos. Mm. Um, so your body is made of Legos. Your body is each cell is a Lego and it fits together. Cancer is a piece of a Lego that doesn't fit right. And it's there. And the surgeon needs to go in and take that piece out and you get, you know, chemotherapy and you get all these drugs that take away that bad piece. And, you know, it causes all these, these physical changes, but that's short term. And, it really helped me describe it to him to, for him to understand. Um, and it wasn't a scary thing because Legos are fun for him. So um, that was, it was just so helpful to have someone that really could, you know, be an outside perspective and, and tell me how to describe this to my kids without making it a scary thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great tactic and, you know, something to have in your back pocket of how to make it, relatable and understandable and not scary. Right. 
And I think that's definitely also where we have a gap in the system as well. I hear from a lot of women that there are not a lot of resources for how to have these conversations with children. Where are the children books of showing the mom who is bald without hair or taking your kids to the park, perhaps, in the headscarf? And I think that's starting to come out more and more as I'm talking to more women. Um, but for all of us who are, you know, entrepreneurial thrivers out there trying to like add and give back to the community, I think that's an area where we need these tactics and these tools um, available so we can have those conversations. One um, example, and I, I know I share it a lot on the podcast, but I love the story is that a mom was telling um, her children that when her hair falls out, it means the medicine is working. So it's a positive, like it's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. And when her hair started to fall out, she literally showed her children like, look, it's it's starting. And the kids were not freaked out that the hair was falling out, but like, mom, let me help you. Let me help pull out your <laughs> hair. It's working. And it became this like bathroom fun time that's traumatic for any of us who are losing our hair. But to incorporate the children um in in that that piece. You know, and I think that's a really important topic. I actually want to take a pause and ask um if there's anyone who's listening into this right now who have had similar conversations with their children about a cancer diagnosis and if there were any tidbits or strategies that that worked for you. Yeah, Kristen. Hi Liz. I um I really liked um a book that was suggested to me uh called Mom and the Polka Dot Boo Boo. Um that was good for young kids. I think it depends on the age of your kids, but my kids were one and three at the, no, four, one and four at the time. Um, and so it was good and tailored towards young kids and kind of that same spin on like, you know, the strong medicine is going to make my hair fall out, but it's also going to make me better. So yes, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. And it had like a similar message to what you were just saying. Yeah. What was that called? Mom and the polka dot boo-boo? Mm-hmm. Honestly, someone recommended that one. And then I just went nuts and ordered like 12 kids books. And that was the only one that I kept and read to my kids. Again, sometimes some of the other ones were good, but I thought they were too old. Some of them I was not a fan of. So I returned the other ones and and just kept kept that one. The psychologist I met with um, also gave me um, a PBS show, the Arthur show. Um, They made a little episode about um, I believe, I can't remember now, it was Arthur's maybe grandmother that um, had cancer and was going to lose her hair. Um, so it was the cartoons of Arthur just talking about how she was losing her hair and she was sick. And there was a short story um, that she gave me. And then she also gave me the CD with the episode. Um, so we kind of looked at it a little bit, but I'd never, we never actually watched the episode, but we, we looked at the short story together Um so that also is, was a really good resource because all kids know Arthur for the most yeah, part. So exactly. Fast forward, we got through the family. You're taking us on this journey, <laughs> and and then what? So you find out your results. Did did your did the results tell you what type of cancer it was at that time, or was it still too early to know the pathology and the characteristics? Yeah. So it, um, initially, it did tell me it was estrogen positive. Um, and the HER2 um, was still pending at the time, but when I met on Friday, when I met with the surgeon, that was back and it was HER2 positive. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah. And that's been consistent even after the, the surgery? Um, well, ironically, no. So with the pathology from my surgery, the, it was HER2 negative, um, but we still treated my cancer as HER2 positive. Um, 
the size of the tumor from the initial um, ultrasounds and mammograms um, was much bigger at the time of surgery. So they just felt like it was changing so rapidly um, and it was um, a fast growing tumor. So they decided to treat me as her two positive um, anyways. I feel like we're cancer twins more and more every single time I talk to you, Liz. That happened to me also, but I didn't know it was negative until like a couple months ago. <laughs> I didn't know oh, wow. that it changed. Um, I was operating under the impression that I was HER2 positive. And also because I was on one of the immunotherapies, Herceptin, for the 12 months that mm-hmm. um, aggressively treats that type of um, breast cancer. And I, long story short, revisited my pathology after my surgery and the the characteristics of the tumor had changed from the biopsy to the pathology from the surgery. And I think that's something that I want to stress in this conversation that a lot of us, I don't think, know. I think a lot of times when we get our initial biopsy, we assume that's the exact type of cancer we have and we hold on to it like the Bible, right? We Google every single word that they give us, ER, PR, mm-hmm. um, HER2, new, any all of these characteristics and terms and breast cancer trying to devour as much information as we can. And then what I'm realizing now as a in hindsight, which I hope to educate people who are listening to this podcast now, is that it can change. And we actually don't really know the final results until they remove the tumor during surgery. And that it does change. And it's I think it's okay that it changes. I don't think it has to be this positive or negative experience, but that the tumor can change. I had chemotherapy prior to my surgery, which is, I don't know if it's common or uncommon, but people can have chemotherapy either before or after surgery, uh, referred to as neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And the goal there was to shrink the size of the tumor so I would be eligible for a breast conserving operation. But the funny thing after my surgery is there's still a question of, well, is it HER2 negative? Did it respond to the chemotherapy? Now that the tumor itself, quote unquote, has been like tainted, right? Like we don't know anymore. It's no longer like this raw specimen. It's been treated with five different chemotherapies. So it's a little hard to go back and pinpoint. And it's when I realized like medicine is not a perfect science. And I heard the phrase before, but never actually knew what it meant until until this. For anyone who has had a breast cancer recurrence, the recurrence can also come back different. So, you know, if you started off HER2 negative or ER, PR positive, estrogen positive, you can have a recurrence and it can be triple negative, right? So I think it's a beast of a disease and changes. So thanks for sharing that. I I felt kind of alone for a little while (laughs) that I was the only one who had a um, confusion around my own diagnosis, but I think it's true because we hold on to what we think we are but it can evolve. And so it's kind of hard to resonate with that. How did you decide on surgery? Let's just jump to the surgery piece now that we know that we have to get rid of this Lego and get it out of your body. Yeah, I just knew I wanted a double mastectomy. I wanted the best chance possible. I wanted it gone. I didn't want to have to worry about the other side. Um, When I met with the breast surgeon. Um, ironically, she initially only talked about a lump lumpectomy. Hmm. Um, and I'm sitting there listening to her thinking, Oh, like, am I crazy for thinking, you know, I want a double mastectomy. And then, you know, she was like, so how do you feel about this? And I was like, 
listen, am I nuts for thinking about just being done with this and take them both and whatnot? And she was like, no, many women opt for that. I was like, okay, well, why didn't you talk to me about that? (laughs) You know, why did I have to bring that up? (laughs) Um, I mean, she did talk about a single mastectomy um, on that one side, but um, yeah, so I, I pretty much knew off the bat, that's what I wanted. Um, and she was like, okay, well, do you want to discuss it with your husband? I was like, no, like, that's what I want. I just, I'm okay with that. Like, let's just move on. Let's get this done. Um, you know, just take them. I don't need them anymore. And, um, so yeah, I, I, it, for me, it wasn't a a hard decision. I just, I wanted every, I wanted the kitchen sink thrown at me for treatment. And that was part of the, the aggressive treatment. So many emotions right there. Okay. First off, one, like why isn't all the options presented? Right. That's issue number one, Um, especially with the option of not having any reconstruction after surgery. That has been a theme that don't get me started on that soapbox. That's another podcast. Um, Two, I have a question. Did you research different types of surgeries when you were diagnosed to know that mastectomy like a double mastectomy was an option for you? Um, I mean, these are some terms that I didn't really I wasn't familiar with. So to go in and know that I wanted X, Y, and Z, did you do some research leading up to that? Uh, so no, not um, for that initial appointment. Um, so that was with just the breast surgeon. So she was the one that was just doing the mastectomy. Okay. Um, and then the following week, I actually met with a plastic surgeon. Um, and she had actually given me like three different options in terms of types of reconstruction and um, she really laid it out there in terms of like, you know, implants and, um, you know, the different flaps and whatnot. And she was completely honest in terms of the recovery time. And my goal was to be done with this, get back to work, move on with my life. And um, that for that to happen in, in a short time was with one surgery um, was just implants. Um and, and so that's really what I based my decision off of, um, was the recovery time. Absolutely. And the second piece of emotion was, do you need to ask your husband? Okay. Girl power right now. Like, are you kidding me? Go yeah. Another episode. Uh, so but- <laughs> ironically, like I didn't even bring my husband to the appointment. I brought my best friend. Yes. Um, because I mean, my husband and I were like two ships passing in the wind with work and everything. And with young kids we like, if one of us is always home with the boys. And I think a lot of people do make decisions based on the recovery time. Again, going back to how long am I going to be out of work? When am I going to be able to resume this normal? One thing I, I personally struggle with is that no one told me when I got diagnosed that it wasn't going to go back to normal. No one said it was just going to continuously be different. Um, yeah. If they told that to me at the time, I probably would have thought they were lying. But, um, you know, different isn't also a bad thing, right? I think there's a lot of positive and silver lining, but I also acknowledge and have a lot of conversations with women where we do want to do direct reconstruction um, and the mastectomy direct to implants, but there's also opportunities, unfortunately, for complications and needing more surgeries, even if you don't plan on that. Did any, did that experience ever happen to you or was it a smooth um, transition? 
Yeah. So I didn't have major complications. I, I mean, I guess I wouldn't call my, I had two more surgeries afterwards. I wouldn't call them complications per se. Um, so I was, I was told there was always that potential for not being, being able to do the direct implants and having to do expanders, but thankfully I was able to do the implants, um, directly. Um, afterwards, I mean, I had a small hematoma and I was, I had to stay over one more night. Fine. No major complications. Um, the drains are terrible. I mean, they don't, they didn't completely tell me how long the drains would be in and, and, I mean, I guess they can't predict that either, but every appointment I was like, okay, they're coming out. They're coming out. Nope. I always had one left in. Um, so it was like such a downer when you would leave and you're like, I gotta come back. Like I still have this, this attachment and whatnot, whatnot, but, um, yeah. how many I, dreams did you have? Four. Four. Okay. Um, I had three. Yeah. Four. Terrible. There it is the weirdest feeling um, when those suckers come out. It's like, I don't know how to describe it. It is a snake being pulled out of you. Um, and it doesn't hurt. It's just a very weird feeling. Yes. Can um, you describe what the drains are for uh, people who don't know what drains are? Yeah. So they're, um, we call them JP drains. They're like bulb suction drains. Um, and they're long. They look like snakes. Like it's a long plastic drain. Um, that it's kind of flimsy, but it has little holes and the bulb causes suction and just drains that excess fluid. So it doesn't cause, you know, fluid pockets and mm -hmm. infection and whatnot. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I mean, that was no fun. Um, and then I, I did not have a nipple sparing um, surgery. So I did opt to go back and have nipple reconstruction and fat grafting. Um, so that was done. I don't even remember now the time frame after my surgery, but um, so I I had that done. That you know recovery wasn't terrible. Um, and then you know a year or so later, I just felt like um, you know after the implants settle, uh, I felt like one side just seemed a little larger than the other. There was like a little fat, you know, extra fat underneath, and. Um, I also felt like I, one side could have used a little more fat grafting. Um, and I was like, listen, like I'm, I have to live with these suckers for another, you know, 14 years or so. And I, let's just do it, you know? So she went, we went back in and she um, did a little fat removal on one side, did some fat grafting on the other side. Um, and here I am. I haven't gone for nipple tattooing yet. That is kind of my game plan at some point. I don't know. It's not something I think about all the time about doing. Um, at some point I will, I think. Yeah. But I'm not, I don't know. It, like that's another commitment that I don't know if I'm ready for yet. Sure. Um, so we'll see. I feel like I can talk to you for another 45 minutes about everything that you just went through. There are two burning topics that I would like to make sure that we cover in this recording as well is one, your, and forgive me if I'm totally misquoting the type of operation you had. Was it a hysterectomy that you opted for or oophorectomy? There's so many different. Yeah. Organs. So I had my, I ended up having my ovaries out. Um, uh, that took a little advocating um, and it was kind of, 
multifactorial, but, um, you know, initially I, with all the immune, the, um, hormone suppression, I was like, why don't you just take them out? I don't need them. I'm done having kids. Let's just remove them. Um, and they're like, we don't do that. We just don't take them out. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, but why? Like, tell me why. Yeah. And they just kept saying all cause mortality. And I was like, but what does that mean? Like, how do you, what does that mean? So, um, I actually then with the Lupron and the Anastrozole, um, you know, just kind of starting so quickly, I started having some bleeding. And um, of course, then your mind goes to God, like, is this a sign of ovarian cancer? Like what's next? So my oncologist was like, you need to follow up with your GYN. And I did, I had an endometrial biopsy that was negative. I had some um, ultrasounds that showed um, ovarian cysts. And I've never had ovarian cysts before. And she felt like I um, was pushed into menopause so quickly that these cysts just developed. Um, and at, when I actually found them, I was the pain was so bad, it actually brought me to the emergency room. And I had a oh CT gosh. scan that showed, for an ovarian, showed an ovarian mass. And I was like, oh my God, I now have this mass on my ovaries. What the hell? <laughs> Um, and uh, that poor emergency room physician, I think he was like, what, who is this woman? Cause I was like, I refuse to leave without an ultrasound. I need labs drawn. I need my tumor markers checked. He's like, yeah, we don't do that here in the, in the emergency room. I go, oh no, no, but we're doing it tonight. Like we're ha- I'm having an ultrasound tonight before I go home. And that's when it just showed it was fluid filled. So it was a cyst. So fine. Followed back up with my GYN had every three months would have another ultrasound and these cysts would go away, but then there was always new ones. Um, so I, um, finally, I just constantly felt bloated and she, my GYN was like, um, so if you really, you know, feel strongly and that these are uncomfortable and you want them removed, we will go ahead and remove your ovaries. Um, So, I mean, that was a decision I had to make. I was done with having kids. Um, I, you know, they kept reminding me of these risks um, of this all-cause mortality and just the risk of another surgery. Um, But I opted for it. Um, So I had my ovaries out. um, And I am not on Lupron anymore. I'm just on the anastrozole. and yeah, I mean, the surgery wasn't terrible. I had it laparoscopically. So um, recovery was fairly quick. You know, within two weeks, I was back to my normal business and back to work. So, and I understand there is other parts of your body that produce estrogen. So I, I understand the anastrozole. But in terms of the Lupron, why do I need a shot in the butt every month for five years if I can just take my ovaries out? I mean, point blank, right? I mean, the shot in the butt is a pain in the literally yes no fun um so I just was like let's just be done with this and I think that tells you how bad it is if we're willing to take a surgery to remove organs that we don't want that shot yeah (laughs) um I do have to ask as someone who's also considering um you know being thrown into medical menopause as you can tell I'm having like hot flashes constantly throughout this entire phone call um and recording but my fear is that is this going to get worse for me if I have the operation, right? Like we think we know what menopause is, but when you get into 
I, I don't know if like the drugs emulated or surgery throws you into it also. Do you have, is there like a before and after in terms of your, your side effects? The hip flashes were slightly worse for maybe the first month. Mm-hmm. And now honestly, they're about the same. Um, I have horrible hot flashes at night, um, like wakes me up no matter if I, I sleep with the air conditioner right on top of me. So um, no matter what, without fail, between 2 and 3 a.m., I'm awake with a hot flash. Um, and then a few times throughout the day, but those are fairly manageable, but the nighttime ones are terrible. Um, yeah. But for the most part, I'm, they're the same as before my surgery. And then my other side effects are really the same. Um, I have a lot of joint pain from um, the the hormone suppression. Um, that's no worse than before for me. So one of the things that I am teetering about is like the osteoporosis, knowing that when you're forced into menopause, and especially at our younger age, being diagnosed with breast cancer under 40, and then thrown into menopause way before we're expected to be, the long-term effects of osteoporosis and our bone strength. So even though I'm on suppression right now, there's a glimmer of hope in my mind that I can still avoid that. And then if I take the step to actually do the surgery, I am kind of shutting that door, if that makes sense. And, you know, I, I don't know where I land on that. I, don't, I, I feel like there's a glimmer of hope for everything. I'm also someone who did not like harvest my eggs or do anything like that. So there's like a glimmer of hope that like maybe one day they'll still be children or maybe, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of waiting for like time to shut those doors versus me needing to confront the issue and make a decision. Um, right. So... And that's kind of where I'm at. And then I just saw the chat come through with Deborah. I think she was mentioning that her surgery is scheduled right now um, for middle of August. And, you know, it's still challenging because, you know, do this is a big surgery, but do we also want to be on medication for the next five to 10 years? And so we're weighing all of these things. And um, I know a lot of us are also talking and having conversations a lot around holistic and alternative medicines. What can we do naturally to prevent cancer from recurring or uh, spreading and, you know, reverse, reverse everything that we've gone through. So it's a personal decision. I'm not ready yet to look myself in the mirror and make, make a yes or no, but I think hopefully with time and talking to more women about their experiences, I think will help us kind of guide that. And it's nice to see someone on the other end talking so positively about that. So So thank you. Thank you everyone for joining us for part two of this series with Liz. Today, she obviously was sharing a little bit about her story. We learned a lot about coping with cancer and children and how to have some of those difficult dialogues, plus the dreaded Lupron shot and some surgical options such as a hysterectomy to relieve some of that. I loved that we were able to take a deep dive into menopause and especially being forced into medical menopause and what some of those effects are long-term for younger women diagnosed with breast cancer. If you missed part one of this series, I will hyperlink it down below in the show notes, but you definitely want to check out Liz's dialogue with us on the podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations, where she takes us on a live tour of what it's like to be an ICU nurse in one of the major Boston medical hospitals during the time of COVID. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events or ways to connect, you can find out more by going to our website, survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experience and not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult with your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, you can contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. 
And of course, we have a couple of social media handles. You can follow us there too. Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word. And then also via the podcast, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.